0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is a bit of a a multi-purpose type of guy, as we will soon find out. Uh, Welcome, Patrick. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, Thanks very much, Nick. Uh, Pleasure to be here. My name's Patrick Grant. I am a multi-purpose type of guy. I'm like the the leatherman of the clothing industry. Um, I run community clothing. Cookson & Clegg, which is a clothing factory in Lancashire, and Norton and & Sons, the bespoke tailors on Savile Row.
0: And does that mean E-Torts is now no more?
1: Well, it's, it's 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 quietly in the background.
0: Okay. Now, what I'd like to sort of start off with is you did various things before you bought Norton & Sons. I won't necessarily go into that. I can recommend your Wikipedia page. It is... Uh, Long, comprehensive.
1: And, and and at least partially accurate.
0: Well that's good. But what I wanted to know was th- once upon a time when you saw that Norton and Sons was for sale, what on earth made you sort of give up everything you were doing at the time and go for it? What was it that grasped you?
1: Uh well I mean I wasn't doing very much at the time, if I'm honest. Well I was. I was finishing off a, a, a master's at Oxford University. Um, and I was supposed to be going back to work for my very nice employer who paid for me to go and do this degree but um I uh, yeah as a kid there were a number of things that fascinated me I mean firstly I was always fascinated by beautifully made objects whatever they they happened to be uh, I was particularly interested in clothes but anything that was handcrafted anything where you had a sense of the kind of quality of the human intervention in this object i was really really fascinated with i was also really fascinated by things made out of the best stuff so i did my undergraduate degree was material science and engineering which was all about what do you make things from how do you how do you make them in order to make the best possible object you can um, so yeah there was a fascination with well made Objects and particularly objects that were handcrafted. And secondly, there was a fascination with, with men's clothes. I mean, I loved fashion at the time, but also was a huge advocate for kind of classic men's style and beautifully made, kind of timeless menswear. And so, uh, Savile Row is pretty much the epitome or the, 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 the apogee of, of men's, men's style. And also, I was really fascinated with old brands. You know, as a kid, I was a snobby little so-and-so. I really liked, you know, I really liked cool old British brands. So, you know, I was into Barber and Aquascutum and Burberry and Lyle and Scott and Pringle and all sorts of stuff like that as a kid. You know, I just was into that sort of thing. So, you know, if you drew a Venn diagram of the three things that I really loved, you had beautifully made objects made out of the best stuff, men's clothes and old brands. Right in the middle of that, you've got Savile Row. So when I found out that, that Norton & Sons was for sale, I, I was instantly fascinated by the idea of it. And I couldn't quite believe that it was true, but it was true. Um, and so, yeah, it didn't feel like, to me, a big leap to, to, to kind of go all in and get involved with that business, despite never really having spent much time working in that industry. I mean, I'd worked as a student at Gap, uh, and I was very good at folding clothes, but uh, <laughs> and quite good at selling them, but uh, that was my only experience in clothing. Um, but I had worked in manufacturing for the best part of a decade in so the that, UK.
0: So that was 2005. What was the state of Savile Row at the time? I mean, were, were there a lot of people... Was there competition to buy Norton's? Uh...
1: Well, it's hard to tell really because the guy who was selling it to me was was making me think there was competition to to, to buy it, but I don't know how true <laughs> or otherwise that was. Um, certainly, we agreed on a price that I thought was reasonably fair. I mean, I probably paid more than I should have done, but uh, you know, I think in the end we got a business that had enormous potential and had been kind of unsullied for the hundred and eighty odd years of its previous existence, and and was a business that I thought that I could turn around. Um so yeah, no, it was uh it, it felt very serendipitous, but um it didn't feel like a big leap to, to, to go ahead and do it.
0: In retrospect, would you have sort of given any messages of wisdom to young Patrick?
1: Uh no you know, to be honest, I was fairly happy with the way you know with the way that worked out. We, um, I mean, I think I might have argued a bit harder to pay a little bit less for it. I might have done a bit more ringing around of what was claimed to be the customer base at the time, find out whether they were really genuinely still real customers or not. But uh,
0: or even live
1: <laughs> these things. These, yeah, well, <laughs> it was, it meant, yeah, and that, yeah.
0: <laughs> so. What happened once you got started with Norton & Son? I mean, was it a a viable business? Well, it wasn't when
1: I took it over. No, it was losing an awful lot of money. And um, more importantly, I think, didn't really have any real identity. I mean, apart from just being a tailor on Savile Row, um, there are plenty of those around and others that were doing a much better job than Norton's were at the time. (coughs)
0: <coughs> it, it does strike but, me that there are quite a few tailors on Savile Row, or at least there's a, n- a number who advertise being on Savile Row, but there's very few that are sort of really the stars.
1: Well, I mean, there are plenty of people that put a Savile Row address on their web entry, but, uh, I mean, real Savile Row tailors, there are probably a, under a dozen. Um But, you know, the ones that are successful are the ones that have a very clear sense of who they are within that community. They have a sense of exactly what the brand is about, their product is about and all the rest of it. And at the time, Norton's didn't really have that. Um, So I set about trying to give it a sense of identity um, and to just reinvigorate the business, you know, put the energy and the passion back into... Uh, what we were doing back into the storytelling back into everything that the brand represented to hopefully be uh, 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 a face for Norton's and um, you know happily we were fairly successful but we've got some good luck along the way the BBC very fortuitously decided to make a major documentary series about Channel 4 uh, about uh, Savile Row for BBC 4. Uh, which began production about six months into my stint at Norton's and aired, I think, maybe late 2006, possibly 2007. But uh, um, we got far more than our fair share of coverage in that documentary, given our relative size. But uh, uh, we also got great coverage doing things like going to the Isle of Harris and... uh, sourcing tweets which were made for just very nice looking telly and uh oh, i remember that. ian denier who made the program um and i got on very well in fact i saw him for doing some filming for something else at norton's last week but uh um so we got very lucky that 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 program had a fantastically positive effect on business on savile row all of a sudden people sort of remembered Savile Row was there but also more importantly I think we're reminded of just how good everything that happens there is in terms of craftsmanship environmental sustainability ethics everything you know it's a it's it's bloody expensive stuff but you know we make clothes that people really care about we make clothes that people don't buy unless they really need them or feel they need them We make them out the best stuff on earth. We repair them over their lifetime. We will alter them over their lifetime. So I think in terms of a way of, uh, having clothes made or procuring clothes, it's about as sustainable a way as you could possibly imagine. It's also very, very low impact because we, you know, we, we do mostly sew it by hand. So you don't even need a lot of power in the production of the clothing. But, you know, we, we source our textiles from, Yorkshire, Scottish borders—you know, just up the road—they're all made out of either uh, very naturally well-sourced wool, or sometimes cotton and sometimes linen. Again, you know, we 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 have exceptional suppliers that make brilliant stuff that really lasts. You know, it's a lovely—it's a lovely ecosystem. It's a great industry to be part of, and I think that um, BBC Four documentary. Shone a a lovely light on most of what was happening on Savile Row, and uh, you know we we benefited enormously from an upturn in business on the back of that show. Um, The second thing that we did that was really fortuitous um, was that a good friend of mine was making a documentary for Channel Four about what 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 makes something cool, Um, who decides what's cool and what's not cool, and he interviewed a guy called Kim Jones for that documentary and at the time Kim was a young uh British designer not that long out of Central St Martins showing his own menswear collections in London and you know and receiving some small amount of critical acclaim for doing it and he he was interviewed for the documentary and my friend Martin introduced him to me and he came to the shop and hung out and loved what we were doing and you know, we didn't speak for a little while, but he got back in touch about six months later and said, look, I've got these pieces we'd like you to to make for the sh- for, for our forthcoming show. We can't find anyone else to cut them or make them. You know, have you got time? And I sort of pretended to look through the back and sort of check how busy we were. And obviously <laughs> it was tumbleweed blowing through the workshop at the time. And I um, was like, yeah, yeah, I think we can just about squeeze you in. So... Um, we did, and Kim was very generous with telling people about Norton's. And through him, we—he has now gone on to become probably the most successful British menswear designer out of the last twenty odd years. You know, he's—he's—he finished. He's currently the uh, head of menswear at Dior. He's creative director at Fendi. He left a almost ten year stint at Louis Vuitton as head of menswear. Uh, and, you know, is a superstar in that world. And he introduced us to lots of interesting people. And we, we, through him, we started working with lots of other young London-based fashion designers. Um, And, uh, you know, it kind of transformed, again, it became, you know, we became the the, the London tailors that Alexander McQueen and um, Kim Jones and... uh, Christopher Kane and Christian Louboutin and loads of other young designers and lots of young designers um, went to either to have pieces made for their shows or to have clothes made for themselves personally. You know, we made a lot of clothes for Alexander McQueen, Lee McQueen um, over the years. And, you know, Kim Jones brought Kanye West to Norton's on a rainy Saturday morning and he hung out and vibed about Bedford cord and you know we kind of it, it just you know from from being a, a the tailors that didn't really stand for very much all of a sudden we were we were the go-to place for London's designers and that's kind of cool so yeah but it was good luck you know we we rode our good luck we worked really hard to make great stuff for Kim he really appreciated the efforts that we went to and through through that professional and personal relationship we ended up you know transforming the way Norton's appeared
0: on the street. Sounds like uh, it really blew the old cobwebs out of uh, the sort of fusty old business. It
1: did. I mean, I think, you know, at at its heart, Norton & Sons is a craft business, like everybody else on Savile Row. We make amazing stuff and we make things in a way that hasn't changed for a a very long time. Uh, I mean, that tradition of and tailoring dates back almost 700 years, or more than 700 years in London. But uh, what you do with that is what defines you. And as a business, Norton & Sons is very forward-looking. We make fantastic, bespoke and now made-to-measure clothes that we feel are very contemporary for young men who want to dress in tailored clothes in a way that's very different to what it looked even two and a half years ago. I mean, even pre-pandemic, I think our, our business was quite different to what it looks like now. But you know, nobody needs to wear a suit to work anymore. And so people are wearing suits because they want to. So their suits don't need to look like business suits anymore, which is great. It frees us to make clothes for people that are anything, a representation of who they want to be or how they want to dress. And it's become quite freeing for suit customers now because, you know, if you want to wear a suit now, it's a personal choice. And you wear it because you think it makes you feel good or look good. Should do both. Um, But, um, you know, I think the reputation of Savile Row in some quarters is quite stuffy. Um, Our business isn't stuffy at all. You know, we make for all sorts of people. We have customers who turn up wearing flip-flops and, we have, you know, former heads of state who have our clothes made, you know, we make for royalty, we make for all sorts of people. You know, everybody, everybody is treated the same and everybody is accorded the same respect and, um, and everybody gets the same amazing quality product at the end of the day. But uh, it's a very interesting place to be right now because it is undergoing something of a transformation. Um, I think when I started 17 years ago, uh, you know, there had been a period where there were some exciting young, younger tailors on the street. And then it went through a period of not really changing very much. And I think the last two or three years have seen a very dramatic change in, in, in the business. But at its heart, we still care about how we make things. We still train all, all our own staff. We, we train our cutters. We train our tailors. We uphold a tradition of craftsmanship. Um, that we will never change, but we will change how and what we, uh, we will change what we make for people.
0: I'm very pleased to hear that the row is doing well these days because there must have been a time when it was looking like it might go the way of Bristol cars and other sort of venerable British institutions.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I'm not saying that it's necessarily all doing well. Um, You know, actually, we're still well below what we were pre-pandemic, but we're still alive and still kicking. And, you know, we think we've got a, you know, we think we think we're in a position where we can rebuild the business to what it was before, and if that's the case, then we we should be all right. But uh, no, it's not. It isn't great right now, and I think not a single tailor on Savile Row would tell you that their business is as good as it was, you know, twenty four months ago.
0: Right. You've branched out into manufacturing clothes and making ready to wear clothes. How did you come about buying Cookson & Clegg?
1: Cookson & Clegg had been a manufacturer for torts. Um, I had spent the best part of a decade banging on about how great British manufacturing was. And at torts, we exclusively produced our clothes in the UK. Um, And I'd developed a really great network of British factories, of which Cookson and Clegg was probably the best. And I got uh, an email on a Sunday evening uh, from the MD at the time, who used to sit in this office here, um, uh, to say that Cookson's was going to be shut. Um, the previous owners had decided that it was no longer strategically important to their business. It wasn't making money. So they were going to shut it. Um, they told us they would finish off any current orders and, uh, that would be that. Um, so I, uh, emailed him back and said, what can we do? And the following day we spoke on the phone and within two months we had, uh, taken over Cookson and Clegg. And I was able to do that because at the time my business at Debenhams, Hammond & Co., was doing extremely well and, uh... We had the money to sustain the pretty massive losses that Cookson and Clegg was making when we took it over. And it continued to make pretty massive losses for a good many years. But luckily, Debenham's paid for all of that. Um, and today, happily, it's not making massive losses. In fact, it's just about breaking even. So anyway, there we are. That was, that was how that came about.
0: It's just as well since there's no more Debenhams, is there now? Or is Debenhams- There
1: is no more. Well, there is Debenhams it's is still uh, is still around under new ownership, but no, Debenhams went into uh, liquidation on the fourteenth of April, twenty twenty. Um, oh, we got an awful lot of money, um, which we never got back. Um, so no, uh, that uh, that particular avenue for funding our business. Uh, Completely dried up overnight, but um, luckily we've managed to find a way through. And we uh, Cooksons is is still here and happily is busier than it ever has been. Our great problem now is finding enough people who would like to learn how to make clothes for a living.
0: I did notice when I visited the Cookson factory, must be four years ago, there wasn't a huge amount of sort of local teenagers manning the machines, is it hard to sort of get the young people into clothes making?
1: I think it's quite hard to get anybody, young or not so young, into manufacturing in this country with some a couple of quite small exceptions. I mean, I think uh, very obviously kind of technology-led manufacturing businesses probably find it a little easier. Um, Certainly the car industry seems to have a good uh, track record of uh, of attracting apprentices for the positions that they are advertising. I suspect British Aerospace down the road making the Eurofighter probably finds it relatively easy to attract people to go and work there. But most traditional manufacturing industries I think have suffered over the last 30, 40 years, partly because they have been industries in decline. They are no longer industries in decline. They are definitely industries that have the potential to regrow if we can find staff. Um, but we've also undersold manufacturing careers systematically. I think both Tory and Labour governments over the last 20, 30 years have done their level best to discourage people from seeing manufacturing as a as a good career blue collar jobs were seen very much as second class jobs and i think it's a terrible thing that we've done because uh these are great jobs they're well paid they're well structured they have great career opportunities you know you you come and work somewhere like this you find camaraderie and mentorship and structure and purpose and a sense of pride in your work and all sorts of good stuff that I think are very, very important to fulfilling careers. And the result of all of this is that we we do find it difficult to find people who want to work here. Um, But I hope we can change that. I hope that by investing in the businesses themselves, so turning... I think a lot of people perceive manufacturing as something a bit kind of oldie Um But the truth is, you yeah, know, we are we are quite uh, advanced manufacturing businesses. You know, to be to be successful in any manufacturing, you need to be state of the art. You need to have the best equipment. You need to have the best systems. You need to have the best digital management. You need to have, uh, you know, you need to have efficiency programs you need to have quality programs you need to be doing everything right you can't you know i don't think there is you could be manufacturing to traditional products but even manufacturing traditional products like clothes furniture uh crockery cutlery whatever it happens to be you need you need state-of-the-art manufacturing to do that well and i think there is a huge opportunity in this country to rebuild uh a dynamic, state-of-the-art manufacturing industry, Um, but it needs political will. It needs, you know, politicians to believe that these are good jobs, because if they don't believe they're good jobs, then young people aren't going to believe they're good jobs, And, and that's really sad. I think we also need to have a look at the way our education system prepares people for work in this kind of industry, because at the moment, I don't think it does a very good job of doing that. You know, we used to have a very, very good kind of, two-stream education system that would um, allow people that were more academic to follow a more academic route and people that were more technically minded to follow a technical education route. And that was all kind of dismantled in, I feel like, the 90s. Um, and, you know, we've got a system now where everybody is encouraged into university, whether that's the right place for them or not. And of course it's very expensive. You know, we no longer get that for free. And a lot of people end up going to do a degree that doesn't really move them very far forward in their career and saddles them with a massive blinking debt. And in this at the same time, there are lots and lots of opportunities at businesses like Cookson and Clegg to learn a trade that could easily see you earning a very decent salary. I mean good uh, good operators on the machinery here can earn between twenty five and thirty to thirty five thousand pounds a year depending on how good they are. Um, and there are opportunities to progress up you know to, to senior positions within the business um, that will be hopefully rewarding for, 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 for an entire career. And there are lots of other businesses in similar fields around this area. So, you know, even if you come and train with us, you know, if you if you don't, for whatever reason, enjoy working here, there are lots of similar businesses round about that you could move to. And if you wanted to spend a career moving between different parts of the textile and garment and other sewing industries, you know, there are furniture businesses. There's a big John Lewis Curtin and Blind business called Herbert Parkinson up the road. Uh, there are... Um, there are technical sewn products being manufactured in this region, uh, things like body armor and other bits of technical sewing. You know, there's a there's a whole range of stuff. And 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 but you know, we just don't sell this stuff well enough. Schools, I don't think, have the, the capability to help people understand that actually going and making something for a living is kind of a cool thing to do. It's kind of it's kind of fun. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. It's active. It's dynamic. It's, you know, it's got loads of positives. So, yeah, it is a challenge. It's a real challenge. And, you know, what we're trying to do with community clothing is make high quality, ethical, sustainable clothing in the UK, make it affordable. And by doing that, create loads of jobs. And, you know, we are creating the demand. We're now, the next part of our challenge is to make sure that people realise how good these jobs are and want to go and do them.
0: Now, firstly, uh, when I visited the oil factory, I thought I could work here because it was nice and light and warm and uh, it seemed a very pleasant place. And looking sort of riffling through the racks a bit when I mean, you're making stuff for a lot of top brands. So I'd think uh, building Eurofighters or making clothes for Nigel Keborn or whatever. I mean, there is a sort of selling point there. Um, secondly, um, community clothing. I think part of the reasoning behind that was to be able to use factory downtime because factories were just employing people when they needed them and laying them off in the off-season.
1: Well, part of the original thinking behind community clothing was really just to get factories back to being full year round. So lots and lots of the factories that we worked with um, at Norton and Sons or at the had long fallow periods in their production schedules. Um, In the high-end clothing world, so for people like Nigel K. and others, they are producing two collections a year. They're Produced in two pretty discrete chunks, uh, with the best management, you can kind of spread. Everybody wants, everybody wants their autumn winter collection in, Dece- uh, in in June, and they want their spring summer collection delivered in December. You can stretch that out a little bit. You know, fa- some fabrics will arrive early, some fabrics will arrive a bit late. But there's, you know, you can't do anything about the delivery window in the fashion industry. So in between those three-month busy periods, there were always at least three months of quiet. And that was a terrible, you know, economic hit for those factories. Some factories would hire and fire. Cooks and Clegg just kept everybody on and lost a load of money. Um, you know, they would pick up whatever work they could, doing simple stuff like sewing aprons and tote bags and things like that. It was not particularly difficult work and not work that you could charge the normal rate doing so part of what community clothing was going to do was just fill this capacity up by saying look our clothes are not seasonal you know we will make sweatshirts and t-shirts and jeans and raincoats and things and whenever you can make them make them and we will hold them in stock because we will sell them year round Uh, and actually the way the fashion industry works is you know nobody really wants to be buying spring, summer clothes in December, January and February. So if we delivered ours, if we restocked in March, April, then that would really, you know, would mean that we'd have the right product at the right time. So actually in terms of timing, it worked fine for us. Um, But of course the long-term ambition was not just to fill up the spare capacity. It was to help those factories grow, increase their capacity overall by adding more staff, adding more automation, um, you know, the more they can grow, the, the better utilized their overhead would be and the lower their cost would be. And overall, you would see this virtuous circle of growing employment, growing investment, growing volume, reducing cost, thereby growing the volume again. And this cycle of, this positive cycle would continue. And that's what we're starting to see now. You know, we've been doing this for six years. Uh, at a couple of the factories that we work with, we're already seeing investment in equipment, investment in new staff, uh, increasing staff numbers. I mean, lots and lots of them that we work with would 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 be bigger if staff were available. Certainly, Cookson and Clegg would be a lot bigger if, if staff were available. Um, you know, we've also had to contend with Brexit, <coughs> which has... Uh, made it very difficult to 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 bring skilled staff into the business. Um, We lost staff who went back to Europe uh, because of things like the hostile environment Um, and you know in principle I would love to be in a position where the great majority of the staff that work at our factory were trained by us from this local community but if people do not want to do that work, we're a little bit stuck. So there has to be a lot more work done sort of back down the chain in order to encourage people to want to come into this.
0: Ooh. How many other people have sort of joined the community clothing circle? Well, we work
1: with, we are working with today, I think it's 32, 32 factories in total across all sorts of different bits. So we have, Yarn spinners, textile weavers, textile knitters, knitted knitted jersey finishers, woven textile finishers, dye houses, cut and sew operations, sock knitters, a couple of different sock knitters for different types of socks, garment knitters, scarf and glove and hat knitters, um, a hat maker, a shoemaker that we're 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 working with at the moment. So some of the product hasn't come out yet. Some of the product is in the pipeline. An underwear factory in South Wales that uh, we're hoping to start major production uh, on underwear with this year. So, you know, we work with a specialist in every area. The idea being that we give them the confidence that in the long run, the business we are putting their way is always going to come their way as long as they continue to do a good job and continue to Make at the quality they're making at, and continue to be able to supply us with good quantities of what we need. I mean, it, it, as the business grows, we may have to split some of those. And and uh, you know, we've we've uh, at the moment we've got two factories for socks, but one factory just makes the sports socks, and the other factory makes all the other socks. So it's, you know, it's quite different different machinery, different skill sets. So we we are highly targeted, but we're you know we are seeing the business grow quite nicely and our big problem now is that we're just out of stock all the time so uh we need to fix that fairly quickly
0: so so where is the community clothing sold is it just online or
1: so uh the original business plan so our business plan is quite different the reason we are able to sell what we sell at the price we sell it at so for example our everyday socks are £4.50 uh they are expensive socks to produce they're produced using really high quality yarns they're produced in a way they're linked hand linked they're uh, knitted in a way that means that they really last they're really comfortable to wear uh, they're durable um, but they're expensive it's expensive to do that we do it in the uk in a factory that's been making really high quality socks for over 100 years and um that was always the you know the the plan was always to to make everything in in the best possible factories we could, but to to sell it at a price that was affordable to most people. So in order to do that, we had to have a look at the business model and. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the the economics, or your your listeners know about the economics of normal clothing, but if you go to any of the high street clothing stores and you buy you spend a hundred quid on a piece of clothing about 22 quid of that will go to the people that made that clothing and grew the fiber so the makers get a tiny proportion of the money that you spend so that's whoever's grown the fiber who's the guy that spun it people that dyed it the people that have knitted it or woven it the finishers the cut and sew operation, everything gets this tiny little percentage and most of the money goes to the brand and of course some of the money goes to the tax man in VAT. In our model, 65 quid of that 100 quid goes to the makers, which is pretty much three times as much. Um, Because that's what we need to be able to do to make good quality clothes that really last Make them out of the best materials that we can get our hands on and to pay the people that make them a good wage that allows them to have a good quality of life Uh, so in order to do that we had to take a load of other cost out of running our business so in a normal clothing industry business model you're 22 quid on the actual making and then, the, you know, the, 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 the remainder of the 82 quid that you get once the tax man's had his bid, you know, there's retail costs, there's design and development of collections every six months or, or more. There's the cost of uh, so, so procuring all this stuff. So flying backs and forth to factories in far flung corners of the world, trying to, you know, shave pennies off the price of whatever it is you're doing. Uh, the marketing cost is pretty dramatic, and particularly on online businesses, fast fashion businesses, marketing is a huge chunk of what they spend their money on. So um, paying influencers to wear their clothes in Dubai is quite expensive. Um, Paying those influencers to put that product on their Instagram accounts, paying for regular marketing, paying for the production costs of Shooting all of this new stuff every six months or more often, you know, every week if you are a fast fashion business, um, all of that is incredibly expensive. Um, and so we cut all of that out. We don't design n- new collections every season, which means we don't need to reshoot everything every season. We don't need to reshoot the web shop images every season. We don't need to reload them every season. We just replace what's what's sold out with with more of the same. Uh, we don't really spend anything on marketing either. We do a little bit of uh, of uh, paid promotion on Instagram and Facebook, uh, and we do some Google AdWords. But we spent, I think, we were we were spending ten quid a week on that last week. Um, <laughs> wow! <laughs> um, because I asked my marketing person, wait, not the marketing person, the webshop person. I was, you know, I, I, that's what we spent last week was a tenner. Um, um, it's not very much, you know, most businesses will spend, uh, at least 10% of their turnover on marketing, if not a lot more if it's, uh, depending on the type of business. So we just don't spend that, you know, we, we shoot our clothes on models. We don't do any, uh, sorry, not on models. We shoot our clothes on people who are from the towns in which we make our clothes, some of them are people that work in the factory. Some of them are friends. Some of them are students. Some of them are just people who like what we do. And, um, you know, we shoot on people of all ages and all shapes and sizes and uh, all ethnicities. And they are, you know, we we, we we give them a little bit of money, but we don't pay them what, you know, professional models in London get paid. Um, we use local photographers, local studios. You know, we put as much of the money... As we can back into the communities where the clothing is made, but uh, we just don't spend very much on that on that kind of thing. You know, we don't have marketing consultants, we don't have copywriters. We do all that stuff ourselves, um, and that saves us an awful lot of money every year. Um, and not designing new collections saves us a load of money. And you know, there are loads of ways in which we save tons of money, and it means that we can put all of our money, or a good, very good chunk of our money, into making the stuff and we let the stuff speak for itself you know we we make a really good product that people really like and it works really well and hopefully if they buy a pair of socks and they think the socks are good they'll buy more socks and maybe they'll buy the pants when the pants come out and maybe they'll buy their jumpers from us or their sweatshirts or their t-shirts because they understand that you know the quality of everything we do is as good as it possibly can be you know we're we're making the same quality stuff that really expensive brands do. You know, our, our four pound fifty socks. Um, you know, the same socks. You can spend twenty quid on exactly the same sock with a designer name on it. Um, we just have a very different model. Also, you can spend four pounds on an incredibly bad sock from someone in the high street that's cost thirty p to make, um, and we'll feel awful the first time you put them on and after a couple of washes won't even be worth wearing anymore um, and will be mostly made out of fairly nasty materials and will just make your feet uncomfortable and sweaty every time you wear them. I mean there's, this is where yeah, part of what we're trying to do is to give people an, af- an affordable good quality alternative to the bad clothes that mostly are being made and sold on, on the British high street and by fast fashion vendors because it is all bad stuff
0: i can sense some of the engineering and you coming back here with the material science and uh
1: very much so i mean it's very helpful to understand you know firstly to understand the science of all of these terrible polymers that people are using um but also to understand just what an enormous difference using the right materials makes to the overall quality of experience and the durability of a product you know you want something that you wear to feel good where you wear it and to get better the more you wear it and to last for a really long time and that's how to fix the issues of sustainability to buy far fewer things and enjoy wearing them for far longer because they are enjoyable to wear if you buy something that's nice
0: how involved are you in the design
1: well they're completely involved in the design. I mean our design process is very simple, you know, we're not we're not we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, in fact we're trying to just do the very best version of the wheel that we can we can manage. Um, you know, we do classic sweatshirts, we do classic T shirts, we do really you know we, we do the stuff that we, we hope will be the stuff that everybody's got in their wardrobe and, 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 and wears day in, day out. You know, we, we do three styles of Chino. We've got a slim one, a pleated one, and a relaxed one. There'll be a Chino for everyone in there. Um, you know, it's just a question really of, it's, it's industrial design more than fashion design. And it's, it, it, it makes me really happy that that's what we're doing. You know, we're trying to engineer better supply chains, engineer the best product we can, make it last and make it wear in a way that is enjoyable. You know, uh, I, it's really, it makes me sad to think that lots of people will never have worn a nice pair of socks because they've only ever been able to afford to buy socks at, I don't know, I don't want to name names, but, you know, the bottom end of the high street and, and maybe those fast fashion businesses. That stuff is bad. If you've, if you've grown up only ever wearing nasty socks, you won't know how bad they really are. You know, treat yourself to a good pair And and see what difference that makes to your enjoyment of just putting your shoes and socks on every day. But also how much longer this stuff will last. You know, I'm wearing socks today that were made um, in... uh, They're actually e socks. They were made in a factory in South Wales that we've worked with for a long, long time. I've had these socks, and I know how long I've had them, because we used to do different coloured toes and heels on different collections. So these socks are from 2012, so that I've had them 10 years, and I've probably worn them 25 times a year. I've probably worn them once a fortnight for 10 years. That's 250 wears, and they're starting to wear out now, but that's 250 wears on a pair of socks. That's what a product should do. That's what every product we buy should do. That's the way to deal with sustainability. That's the way, you know, that the UN... Climate change goals for the fashion industry are a reduction of 90% of our in our greenhouse gas emissions. That just means wearing something ten times longer. If your standard socks last you 25 wears and ours last you 250 wears, we've solved the problem of greenhouse gases in the fashion industry just by just by the simple expedient of making a product that's that's durable rather than not. And actually, I had to wear a pair of socks from a quite well-known. High Street clothing retailer used to probably be the biggest one we had. But um, one of the crew at Sewing Bee went to, had to go and buy me a pair of black socks and they got the expensive ones that this particular high street retailer does. They have a a signature brand Um, and they were about £4.50, which is about the same price as ours. And I've got to say, they were awful. They felt thin and flabby and nasty on my feet. And I couldn't, honestly, the first time I'd worn socks from this particular place for a long time, and I couldn't believe how bad they were.
0: Right. Now you mentioned the sewing bee. How much fun has that been?
1: Uh, a lot. The most fun. Uh, sewing bee, so particularly the last couple of years, when, when you know, everything else at work has been really, really hard work, uh, sewing bee is just a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's so much fun, it's hard to describe. But, I mean, it's hard work. We work long days. We, you know, everybody does, uh, I mean, I do about the least work of anybody on there, um, but everybody else works incredibly hard. I just stand around and say what I think about some clothes, which actually isn't very difficult. Um, but it is enormous fun. The contestants are brilliant. the The whole idea that we are in a... In a very non-preachy way, showing people what clothes are all about, uh, I think is really important. I know that as a result of sewing Bee being on the telly, literally millions more sewing machines have been sold in the UK in the last seven, eight years. Um, So people have started repairing their clothes. People have started making clothes. All of this is really important. People have started to ask questions about the clothes that they buy. You know, people now... Look at an overlocked seam in something and go, "Hmm, I know what that is, and I know where that should be and where that shouldn't be." Um, and uh, and I think that kind of education is something that people ought to ought to get in school, but don't. You know, if we are going to make smart choices about the clothes we buy, we have to understand the difference between wool and polyester. You know, I think if you asked a hundred schoolchildren what polyester was, you probably get an awful lot of blank faces
0: i'm very surprised by by that uh, and i see a lot of sort of supposedly high ish end brands now sort of mixing still lots of synthetics in their wool charging big prices describing it as possibly wool mix wool
1: blend wool rich cotton yeah. blend cotton rich that just means some cotton or some wool with polyester usually or acrylic or something else but yeah. Again, a lot of people don't know. I mean, God, God bless him, <laughs> Joe, at one point said to me, but what is polyester? And he was a well-educated 30-year-old man. If nobody tells you, if you don't know, I mean, I did a degree in material science. We studied polymers. I know what polyester is. But, you know, if you don't do chemistry at A-level, then you might never know. You know, it's like with food. If we're going to make smart choices about the food we buy and eat... We have to be educated on where our food comes from and what what it contains. It's the same thing with our clothing. If we don't know what it is and where it comes from, how can we be expected to make choices that are good for the planet?
0: Do you think fast fashion will change at all?
1: Uh, Not if it doesn't have to. I think it's doing its level best to appear like it's making changes for the better, but the... The truth is, it's, it's doing whatever it can to continue to encourage people to buy at the same rate that they're buying. You know, they can, you can fiddle with the materials and make a, maybe you can make a 10 or 15% difference to the overall ecological impact of clothing. But if you don't switch to a business model where low consumption is the, uh, outcome you, you seek, then you're not going to make any in, in, uh, you know, inroads into the massive problem that fashion is right now. And all of these guys who are busy claiming to be sustainable in the materials choices that they make are still trying to get you to buy more stuff every week. You can't be sustainable and in fashion. The whole idea that we are encouraging people to close change their clothes periodically for no reason other than that we've somebody's decided they aren't cool anymore, is completely at odds with the idea of living sustainably on the planet. There's no Indeed. getting around that.
0: Now, you mentioned buying better stuff, uh, stuff that will last, etc. I did want to ask you about um, one of my favourite jackets, uh, a barber that uh, you did in collaboration with... Norton & Sons did in collaboration with Barber a few years ago. How, how did that come about?
1: Uh, they dropped me a line and said, do you fancy doing Beacon Heritage? And I said, yes. Uh, I'd always really liked Barber as a, as a business. Um, I was... Uh, I, I mean, I probably had four or five old Barbers in my wardrobe. As you should. As you should. I've got green ones and blue ones and a black one and uh, different lengths and different styles. And you know, it's a brand that I'd always loved as a kid, and so I was delighted to go and work for them. Um, I think it's a business that sadly is going through something of a transformation, not necessarily for the best. I loved it when it made half a dozen products and they were all made in South Shields. Now it makes thousands of products, many of which I don't think have got any real value or integrity to them. I don't want to have a go at them because I still like the brand and I like the people there, but I think, uh, I think it was a brilliant business when it, when it stuck to what it was really good at. And I think there have been a number of examples of people who've sought to capitalize on the goodwill in a brand. To, do, to make bigger businesses that don't really, I think, resonate. It certainly doesn't resonate with me. I mean, the brands, the brands I love now are the brands that make their own stuff pretty much exclusively and make them in a way that has complete integrity and has no compromise in the production process. So, you know, I'm wearing a pair of Trickers shoes today. You know, people like Trickers. In fact, pretty much... All the genuine Northampton shoemakers—I've got a lot of time for. Um, you know, most of the good shoemakers make all their own stuff. That's that's the right way for things to be. Um, you know, I buy I buy Red Wings, I buy Trickers, I buy. You know, I've got Edward Green and John lalb and um, a few pairs of Churches. I mean, th- those guys, I think. Have have real integrity around their product. They train their own staff. Everything is about making the best product they can. And it's really sad to me that they are suffering because leather shoes are going the way of uh, office suits and ties a little bit in a men's and a man's wardrobe. But I hope they find a way to continue because you know that kind of integrity is what what I think the world needs and deserves going forward. Um, also, they they. They're things that last a really long time. So um, I've forgotten what the question was now. Sorry, I've rambled on too long.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about um, about those fantastic jackets you designed for Barber, but oh uh...
1: uh, yeah, no, sorry, <laughs> I got onto a ramble about Barber.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I mean, I, I feel it because so, there are. I mean, I think Barber is Barber. Barber is a fab brand. I mean, there are some great products still at Barber. You know, the, the South Shields factory makes a lovely product. And I will support Barber as long as they continue to make their fantastic uh, classic Barber products in their own factory in South Shields. I don't want to support them doing something different.
0: I think their range for men is about eighty different jackets now.
1: Yeah, when I when I when I finished working for them, I was there for a year and a half doing. I did three seasons at Beacon Heritage. Between you and me. I think there was something like 2400 products on their roster most of which had nothing to do with the dna of real barber and a business that really stands for doing something good and incredibly durable like that that you know they are one of the classic products that get better with age you know nobody wants a new barber jacket you want a barber jacket that's had 20 years of wearing in, because that's when it's starting to get good
0: i think that's sort of a you have two types of people you have the ones who want the old worn out barber and you have the guys who want it when it's brand new and will sell it once it starts getting a little creased
1: right well that's good because then they can sell those to the people that you know all of this circularity i mean we're looking at the moment um at at Starting, uh, I mean, it's not going to happen anytime in the next 18 months, but we'd like to be selling secondhand community clothing on the site alongside new community clothing. You know, we have absolute confidence that our product will last for a really long time. And for some people, you know, they want something new. Some people want that sweatshirt. You know, we do a 480 gram all cotton sweatshirt they really only start to get good after you've worn them for a few years and washed them a few times and started to, you know, let them kind of bed in. And, you know, there will be people out there who would rather go straight to that aged sweatshirt that's properly aged. You know, we never, we don't artificially distress our products. Um, you know, we're not going to get the sandpaper out and start rubbing away at our jeans like a lot of people do. But for some people, you want, you know, you, you want the clothes with that kind of uh, patina of age on them. And so I think, you know, we would quite like to sell secondhand community clothing alongside new community clothing on certain products. You know, we're not going to do that for pants and socks and probably not for T-shirts, but for certainly for things like heavy gauge sweatshirts and jeans. and Any product that we know is really going to last, we'd be happy to sell the new and the second hand side by side and to pay, you know, to pay customers who want to trade it in. And, you know, for those people who want a new one, you can trade in your old one. We'll pop it on the site second hand and you can, you can buy a new one, but you know, we need to increase the circularity of clothing. I mean, not, you know, if if there are people who don't want to keep their clothes for a long time because they don't like the way they look, we as a brand have to find a way to make sure that we kind of match people up with, with, with what they want me personally i'd rather have you know i've got sweatshirts that i bought i moved i lived and worked in california for a couple of summers in uh, when i finished university um and i was buying sweatshirts then so that was in the very early 90s so i worked there in 1990 and again in 94 um i was buying sweatshirts that were probably 70s and 80s so potentially fifteen to 25, 30 years old, and I love them, and I've still got them, uh, and they're my favourite ones. So um, yeah, having 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 a having a, a, a having confidence in your product, I think is 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 you know is absolutely everything, and we do, and so we should be happy to sell it secondhand.
0: I see there are some other fast fashion companies that are do- doing the same thing now, offering resale of their pre-sold stuff. Do you think their reasoning is the same?
1: No, I think their reasoning is to provide customers with enough uh, sense of doing something that's vaguely good to allow them to continue buying the same volume of clothing that they were buying before. That's my feeling about all of that. I mean, that's not to say that the people inside some of those big fast fashion companies who are on the sustainability teams are not absolutely well-intentioned and really, really good at what they do. I just know that at the top end, the business's model is still selling more stuff, not slow down consumption.
0: Which is kind of the elephant in the room, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Not the elephant in this room. Because we're, you know... Britain is a very big country, you know, we, we, we would like to sell everybody a really good pair of socks that they keep for 10 years because there are more than enough, uh, you know, there are more than enough people just buying one pair of socks to keep all the sock factories in Britain absolutely chock-a-block forever. So, you know, I'm very happy for people to buy very little stuff and to buy very good things instead.
0: Like a bespoke suit. Well,
1: that's definitely not for everybody. There's no way we can do those at affordable prices, sadly.
0: Yeah, sadly. I've always wanted one, but I can't see it. Well,
1: you know, there's just an amazing amount of hours, and the people that make them are incredibly well paid. Um, There's no getting around it. Also, you know, Savile Row, although it's relatively expensive for central London, it's still central London. Relatively inexpensive for central London, I should say. Um, But yeah, you know, hand-making a suit takes a very long time, and the guys that do it uh, are very well-paid indeed, as they should be.
0: Well, I think we've come to the end of our allotted time, Patrick. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank
1: you so much for the opportunity to talk about these things, and uh, uh, thanks for wearing a lovely-looking Fair Isle jumper, which is...
0: It's uh, Scottish made.
1: I'm very glad to hear it.
0: From uh, Ian Trickett, who I think Ooh. you know. You
1: know very well, yes.
0: I was just uh, sitting here a bit earlier and I was thinking, well, wow, I'm actually looking a bit smart today. A bit smarter than uh, Patrick Grant. What are the odds?
1: Well, I'm wearing a, a sweatshirt that's made just behind me. hand embellished with a little, uh, a little detail. But um, it's, a, it's a martlet, actually, sewn on with a bit of old uh, grey melton. But, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm head to toe, I'm head to toe in clothes that are made here in the UK. From my Trickers shoes to my Torts socks to my uh, community clothing sweatshirt and T-shirt.
0: Okay, I was going to ask you um, how it felt because when you um, did the Torts comeback, it was all big pants. Yeah, and big pants are sort of all the rage now. Yeah, they are. Years later. Yeah. Do you want what? to take credit for it? I I might as well
1: Funnily enough I was having this conversation With somebody else uh, A a designer that we work with And they did You know Said the same thing We were We were You know But fashion is just a pendulum It wasn't like we invented baggy pants We were just the first people To go back to them Having suffered skinny pants For far too long Um, Very expensive to make Baggy pants That's you know Fast fashion will continue To try and sell you Skinny short stuff Because it uses a lot less fabric (laughs) And it's all about saving pennies where they can, or even fractions of a penny.
0: Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day about why were they using these awful buttons when they could have bought from Courtney and co and had sort of buttons which actually came with a free story. It's all about the
1: money, sadly.
0: OK, Patrick, I'll let you get on with your day.
1: Thanks very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: It was lovely. Thanks a lot. And uh, bye-bye. Bye. that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.